Almighty God and Father, we worship you this morning and we cry out to you from a place of need that you would give us yourself in deeper measure as we come to your word. Lord, feed us on your son, strengthen our faith, renew us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You can be seated. The Christian gospel is all about life, and today we are marking Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a Sunday when churches around the nation remember God's gift of life, commemorate the lives lost to abortion, and commit to standing for life at every stage. And we want to declare clearly today that God is for life. The tragedy of abortion, and this is not a political statement, is a blight upon our nation and a great injustice against innocent lives. With Christians around the globe, we stand opposed to this practice and we thank God for places like the Boston Center for Pregnancy, Pregnancy Choices with whom we partner that are serving pregnant women at a decisive moment in their lives here in the city of Boston. In our commitment to stand for life, we remember that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Paul says in Ephesians 6. And we aim to pray for and win over the hearts and minds of those who practice and promote abortion with our commitment to service and to justice and to the protection and defense of human life at every stage. Further, I do want to add that I know many of you, men and women alike, have been impacted by abortion in your lives. And there is pain, perhaps shame, regret, and an ongoing unrest in this area. To all of you for whom this is a very personal and painful and perhaps even secret reality, I want you to know that God is a God of life and that he is a God of healing, a God of forgiveness, and a God of rescue and redemption. And we want to walk with you into the abundance that God offers to us all. And we would be privileged to do that by hearing your story, by carrying your burdens with you, and by embodying the forgiveness of God to you. If you're not sure where to turn, I know that any minister in this community would love to hear from you, myself included, and I would encourage you to reach out. So we are a people of life. It's good to say that on a day when we remember the sanctity of human life. And we serve a God of life. And today we are continuing with Jesus' bread of life sermon in John chapter 6. It, it is a sermon that is all about life. We saw it last week that Jesus warns us about working for the food that perishes, which we can all so easily do, and calls us instead to work for the food that endures to eternal life. He then tells us where to find that food from the Son of Man and how to receive it through trusting him, believing into him, and then what it is, Jesus himself. Verse 35, I am the bread of the life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. To come to him, to believe in him, is to be filled. It is to have life. Remember, as I said last week, that Christianity is all about a person, Jesus. And it is deeply personal. 
because this Jesus invites us to trust in him, to put our lives into his hands. And that relation of trust is what brings us to true life. As the sermon in John continues, Jesus addresses different dimensions of this life, and these are what I want us to examine together this morning. First, there is the duration of life. And this is a theme in this passage of looking forward. And by forward, I don't just mean around the corner or into next week. I mean into eternity and beyond death itself. This is one of those Christian truths that we can easily lose sight of by over-familiarity. And we've all had that experience. There are many rooms here at Park Street Church that overlook the common and have incredible views of, back bay, of the Back Bay skyline. I had a friend visiting here this week and he met me here at the church and he looked out the window and he was just mesmerized. He said, skylines are some of my favorite views. And he took out his phone and took a couple of pictures. And as he did so, I hated to admit that in some ways I'd already become somewhat uh, unimpressed by the viewer that it had just turned into the background of normal life, a routine part of my day in and day out experience. And I didn't really notice it that much anymore. And we all know that experience, extraordinary things just become routine. And I fear that that happens with this truth about the duration of life. The life that Jesus, the bread of the life, comes to bring is eternal. It is never ending. This is a clear and obvious feature of the second half of Jesus' sermon here in John 6. And if you have the text open, I invite you to look with me in these places. In verses 39... 40 and 44, Jesus talks about raising, up, raising us up on the last day, a clear reference to the coming resurrection about which he had talked in his divinity sermon in John chapter 5. In verse 47, Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. Then in verse 50, he says that one may eat of this bread and come down from heaven and not die. And then in verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 54, if we eat of him, we have eternal life. And then he closes the sermon with verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. All of these verses and references remind us of the simple but profound statement, the most well-known passage, not only from the gospel of John, but of the entire scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is at the heart of the message of this sermon in John 6, at the heart of the message of the Gospel of John, and quite honestly, it is the heart of the New Testament message, this kind of unending life. My question is, do we remember that? Do we believe that in our lives? This life is not the end. This world with all its pain and sorrow and uncertainties and fears, this is not the end. Death itself. And we are certainly living in a time where death is not as much on the margins, but more in the center due to the pandemic. Death itself, for all that it intrudes upon us, is not the end. We grieve, Paul says. Of course we do and should. Jesus wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. But Paul says we grieve as those who don't, not, not as those without hope. There is more to come, so much more than this lifetime, such that however long our lives are on this earth, they are merely a breath in comparison with the fullness of life that we will always enjoy. This point was first drilled home to me by God 
when my closest friend was killed in a car accident at the age of 19 when we were both sophomores in college. We ran together nearly every morning and ate breakfast in the cafeteria after we ran and we volunteered together as Young Life leaders at a local high school and then just one day, one afternoon, his life was gone. And I'll never forget the significant wrestling in my life in those few days after his death. God was working on me. I was, he had my attention more than he usually did and winning me for himself in a new way. In fact, it was out of that experience and that wrestling that I had a clarity about his call upon my life to serve him as a pastor. The wrestling at that time was focused on this. Do I believe that Chris's life did not come to an end on that interstate that afternoon? Do I believe that he lives on in Jesus, actually lives on? There was a deep conviction in that moment that yes, this is in fact the case. And that conviction is what helped me to begin to more absolutely surrender my life to God, a surrender that I'm still working through, of course, as we all do to the end of our days. But that was a decisive time for me. And I think honestly for me and for all of us that the amazing truth of the unending life that we have in Jesus becomes like the skyline view from Park Street Church for most of us. Just part of the background or something that we can assent to in our minds, but it just kind of hovers up there and it doesn't really sink in or affect the way in which we live and what we do every day. But think about this. Jesus said if we trust in him, if we eat of him, we will never die. We will live forever. We will be raised up at the last day. That is an amazing and sure hope. And we desperately need it. We need this future orientation, this conviction about the duration of life that Jesus gives as we slog through the difficulties and trials of this life. Calvin writes that this focus on our future reality is highly necessary because we always have one foot in the grave and indeed are not far from continually being swallowed up by death. To live well in the midst of the difficulties, we must, as Calvin says, apply our minds and senses to the last day. And Jesus knows this, and he continues to lift our eyes there in this gospel. Your future is sure and certain if you are in him, raised on the last day to unending life. This week ahead, I want to encourage you to remind yourself of this reality every day when you wake up in the morning. Think ahead, and I don't mean just think about what you're having for lunch or what your evening plans are, but think way ahead and remember that you will never die. But it won't be like the present world that we know, but all will be well and all will be set right in that future. Nothing, not even death itself in this moment can interfere with that promise and that future that is coming. And it is the resurrection of Jesus himself, of course, that is, at the, that is at the heart of our faith that authenticates this hope as real and true and solid because that new world has already been burst into the present world in his resurrection body. This past week at our all staff meeting on Wednesday and then again at our board of elders meeting on Wednesday night, we read all of Hebrews 11 together. That chapter is a powerful reminder of the call to look forward, as did Noah, Abraham, Sarah, 
Moses, and many more. They were looking forward to the promises, to the better country, to a city that God had prepared. And Jesus is reminding us to look forward as well, to embrace the eternal duration of the life that we have in him. Let's keep this fresh and central in our lives as the people of God. It will change the way that we encounter everything that we encounter to remember that life that we enjoy in Jesus never ends. It is this that enabled the earliest Christians to become known for their lack of fear of death. They believed in what Jesus teaches here, that their life would never end. Second, let's think about the origin of this life, this never-ending life. We wrestled with this briefly last week as well, but it features even more prominently in the second half of Jesus' sermon. Look at how things begin in verse 36. Jesus said, uh, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. There's this admission of the obstacle of unbelief. These people have seen him and don't believe. And we might think, well, doesn't that discourage Jesus? Doesn't that cause him to question his, his effectiveness? I know it does for us when we share about Jesus with others and there doesn't seem to be a response. But look at his focus in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Or again in verse 39, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Do you see where his hope rests in his mission? The Father gives a people to Jesus. Jesus' emphasis and focus is upon divine initiative and the assurity and security that that initiative brings to his followers. In verse 37, he says he will never cast out those whom the Father has given him. And in verse 39, I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. This emphasis upon the divine sovereignty of the Father who gives a people is a doctrine of great assurance and comfort to those of us who are in Christ. There is a similar pattern in verses 41 and 42. The people, and this echoes back to the grumbling of God's people in the wilderness, in the Exodus story, the people grumbled about him and they said in verse 42, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? Who is this guy? We, we know who he is. We know where he's from. We know his mom and dad. How in the world could he say these kinds of things about himself? We can't believe this nonsense about him coming down from heaven. This is Jesus from Nazareth, the carpenter. The ordinariness of Jesus' flesh is a stumbling block to them. But notice Jesus' response, verses 43 and 44. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Father must draw him, must draw them. That is the weight on divine sovereignty and grace again and again. And in this case, the sovereignty isn't just the sending of the Son from above, coming down from heaven, but it is in the subjective response of faith that we find in ourselves. All is of God. The Father must draw people, Jesus says. Our response of faith to Jesus originates with the grace of God, the sovereign hand of God working in our lives. 
We are not drawn against our will, but we are compelled into the way of Jesus through the hearing of the gospel and through the light and salt of the people of God who embody the gospel. But this drawing to which we respond is not because we are more spiritual than those or more worthy than those or more inquisitive than those who perhaps don't respond. On the contrary, what Jesus teaches here clearly is that our response is attributed to the work of God in our lives, to his drawing us. And having said that, we should also say that, yes, as we said last week, Scripture affirms human responsibility. The rejection of Jesus is something for which we are culpable. And we see that in places like John 3, 19 to 21. There is a responsibility already in this sermon. Jesus points to that when he says we must come to him and believe into him. Or in verse 40, we are to look on him and believe in him. We have a responsibility for this. But our, our faith, our response is rooted and originates, however mysteriously, in the sovereignty of God by his grace. This paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility is something that we cannot logically comprehend in full. Like the incarnation or the trinity, there is mystery here which we are simply encouraged to gaze upon and accept on the basis of God's word and then to move forward by faith. We might think, too, that such a strong affirmation of divine sovereignty and grace as we see here severs the nerve for evangelism. But I would remind you of how this seems to impact Jesus here in this text. In the face of opposition that was expressed in verse 42, he actually draws attention to the sovereignty of the Father in verses 43 and 44. It is this sovereignty of the grace of God to draw people to Jesus that gives him confidence and assurance in his ongoing mission. He moves forward knowing that the Father will draw people to himself. At the beginning of J.I. Packer's little book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, he writes, Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other, the truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And Spurgeon responded, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Packer continues, friends? Yes, friends. This is the point we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. And they are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends. And they work together. Consider what the Lord said to the Apostle Paul one night in Corinth in a vision. Paul had been opposed and his gospel had been opposed by the Jews in the city. And the Lord came to him at night and said this, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Can we imagine God saying that to us in Boston? I have many in this city who are my people, so don't give up. Don't be afraid. Don't give in. Also, don't panic. Don't fret. Don't overreach. Don't control. But patiently, faithfully, courageously, live and speak for me in this city and do so with a sense of rest and assurance and confidence because God has many people in the city of Boston who are his people. And this should encourage us to be authentic and genuine. 
Perhaps we might even say relaxed and restful, yet fervent and prayerful, knowing that God will draw people to himself as we faithfully bear witness to him. This is an encouragement, the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, to our missionary efforts. When we lived in D.C., I had a friend who was an attorney, told me the story of being on the metro one morning and reading his Bible. And he noticed a woman across the aisle from him who was doing the same. As she got up for her stop, she paused, leaned down to him, and whispered with a smile on her face, we're everywhere. God has people everywhere, whether they know it yet or not. And he is at work. Third, and more briefly, the scope. Because if we fear that this emphasis upon divine grace and sovereignty reduces the scope of the gospel, we actually need to consider what Jesus says in this sermon, especially in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone. That is the scope of this offer of life. It extends in its offer to everyone who would believe. That's the will of God, that everyone who looks on the Son would come to him. It is a wide invitation and a tremendous encouragement to all who hear it. God, the creator and maker of all, God's will is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And this is amazing. This is a window into the graciousness of the God that we serve. A God whose delight is not in the punishment of rebels like us, but whose delight is in their redemption and rescue and restoration. A God who has consigned all to disobedience, as Paul writes in Romans eleven thirty two, 32, so that he might have mercy on all. The mercy of God magnifies his glory, his perfections, his beauty, his wonder, his power, and his love. The mercy of God is what is going on in the world as the gospel goes forth. Jesus says in verse 45, as he quotes Isaiah 54, 13, and they will all be taught by God. And in the original version of this in Isaiah 54, it means the all there means the, the children of God, the people of Israel. But Jesus widens it, its application to intentionally include all. And then he says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And there are those words back and forth in this sermon, all and everyone showing us the far-reaching impact of the grace of God, that it is an offer that is welcoming of all and given to all who would hear and respond by looking on the sun. So when we look around in our city, in our world, there is no one who is not a proper recipient of this call. It reaches to the proud and the humble, the rich and the poor, the oppressed and the oppressor. It knows no barriers of class, or ethnicity, or education, or gender. The call to faith has a wide and universal scope. And anyone and everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Jesus. Jesus has come down from heaven, verses 39, 50, and 51, in order to bring this life to anyone who would eat of this bread. The scope is wide. And fourthly and finally, the means the means of this life, eating the living bread that came down from heaven. Verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Well, what is this bread? 
and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Here, Jesus is referring to the giving of his body on the cross. It is the sacrificial, fleshly, atoning death that liberates us from the powers of sin and that brings about our forgiveness from sin and and, and enables our participation in life. The life that Jesus' fleshly body mediates to us and to the world. A life that was not inherent in his flesh, but a life that comes into his flesh by virtue of him, the divine person becoming flesh. And this deliverance that he gives us through his flesh is demonstrated in the bodily resurrection that follows three days later. This was a life, death, and resurrection occurring in the flesh. That is, it is physical and earthy. It is real and bloody. And it is this physical death that brings about the spiritual and physical life that will never end. Such is the mystery and the offer of the Christian gospel to the world. Jesus continues in verses 52 through 58 to explain that we are to feed upon him, upon his flesh. Without doing so, he says in verse 53, you have no life in you. Then he says in verse 54 that whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life. He will be raised up on the last day. Then in verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. To eat his flesh and drink his blood is to abide in Jesus and to have life in him as he has life in the Father. This bread, he says again, is not like the manna which the fathers ate and died. But as we saw before, he finishes the sermon, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It is in part because of these words that early Christians were not infrequently accused of cannibalism. Jesus' words are, in fact, very provocative. In fact, the word he uses for feeds in verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, is a word used for animals, typically, eating a meal with the munching, chewing, gnawing, and noises that that entails. It seems that Jesus is pointing toward the physicality of this, of what he intends as a reminder of the eating and drinking of him as our source of life. Scholars divide and have for 2,000 years over whether to see a reference here to the not yet instituted Lord's Supper. I think the weight of the evidence in John 6 points us in this direction. The chapter begins at Passover, Jesus up on a mountain, then multiplying bread after giving thanks, Eucharisteo. And then he talks about being the bread of life. In comparison with the manna, which is all about the exodus and deliverance of God's people from slavery into the promised land. Of course, unlocked by the tenth plague of the angel of death from which they were spared by Passover. And then he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It is also not uncommon for Jesus to say things in the Gospel of John that wouldn't be fully understood by his disciples until after his resurrection. Such as in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. If this is what, if this is what Jesus is encouraging us to see, and I think this would have been clear to the original hearers of the gospel of John, 
who had been celebrating the Lord's Supper regularly for decades at that point, then Jesus is encouraging us to see that we feed upon him in the word-defined and sacrament-practicing community of his people who come to him by faith. There is no tension between the sacraments instituted by our Lord and the gospel of our Lord. The word of the gospel remains primary and basic, and the sacraments become visible words, expressions in smaller ways of the greater word of the gospel that exhibit Christ and his saving benefits to us. The Spirit then confers those benefits upon those who receive the sacraments in faith by the sovereign and free grace of God. These ritual acts that deal in the stuff of creation are a beautiful way of God accommodating himself to our lowliness, our creatureliness. Not dissimilar to the reality of the great miracle at the heart of the Christian faith that God, the eternal God, became flesh and dwelt among us. That is God in his graciousness accommodating himself to our needs by entering into the stuff of creation that we might know him, see him, and come to true life in him. In a much smaller but, more, but, but equally important way, God similarly uses the stuff of creation in the sacramental actions to communicate himself to us. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And there were ritual meals which Israel did long ago, Passover chief among them. And Jesus then institutes the Lord's Supper as a new Passover for the new covenant community of God's people. These meals were meals of remembrance of the great work that God had done, but also of covenantal communion with God, the God whom we are remembering and through which he gives us grace, which means that he gives us himself. I would say it is to the church's detriment that we have at times obscured the gift of the sacraments as God-given visible words that strengthen and nourish our faith. Now, of course, just how we feed upon Christ in the sacramental meal has been a source of great Christian controversy throughout the history of the church. We do not affirm the transubstantiation doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And I say that without disrespect for our Catholic brothers and sisters, but just to state that plainly. As Protestants standing in the Reformed tradition, we, we do affirm the value of the sacraments and affirm their effectiveness as ritual acts instituted by Christ himself through which God freely gives us Christ spiritually by faith as we engage with the stuff of creation, water, bread, and wine. What Jesus is saying then is that we are nurtured in him in the word-defined and shaped community of his people, a community for which he instituted sacraments, that reinforce our faith and deepen it in him. There are similar messages delivered, I would say, at the Emmaus Road story in Luke 24, where Jesus un unpacks all that the scriptures has said about him to the two disciples as they walk on the road. And then remember that beautiful moment, they invite him into their home for dinner, and he sits down at the table, and then he takes the bread and breaks it. And as he breaks the bread, they recognize him, and he vanishes from their sight. We see that pattern of word and table. There in Luke 24. Or again in Acts chapter 2, that summary statement about the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. 
There's the word, the apostles' teaching, first and primary. But there is also the breaking of the bread, the sacraments. What a gift of grace that we get to come to God in our weakness by the grace of the Spirit to feed upon Christ spiritually in the people of God. As we hear the word read and proclaimed and expounded before us. And as we come to enjoy Christ in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Feeding on Christ by faith in the context of the worshiping community of God's people, the church. Is the means by which this life is deepened in us. By which we continue to abide in Christ. Thanks be to God. Life. It is all about life, this sermon, the bread of life, a life that never ends, a life that originates in the grace and sovereignty of God, a life that has the widest reaching scope that we can imagine, and a life that is communicated to us as we feed upon Christ spiritually by faith, sitting under his word, and coming to his table. May God move us more deeply into that life, that never-ending life, in this week ahead. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of life in your son. We thank you for his death upon the cross. We thank you for his resurrection three days later. We thank you for his ascension. We thank you for his present rule and reign over all of creation. And we thank you for the outpouring of the Spirit in giving us this life, in union, bringing us into union with Christ and enabling us to be sustained by him. Oh Lord, I pray that you would deepen our sense of this life in our lives, whatever it is that we're facing this week, whatever it is that we're wrestling with today, pray that you would deepen us, that we might shine your light brightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.